Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike, focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern and pioneer. My name is Shane, here in Denver, Colorado, and with me on the line from Chicago, it's our godfather, Dave Harbarger. I was a real proud papa this weekend, all because of our guy who's not here this week. Oh yeah, Stanislav. Uh, Stan's going to be back next week. He is on his honeymoon, so tweet and email your congratulations directly to at Medium Gallery, or us at the Dive Down if you want to. Uh, but a nice sub-in, a tag-in from outside the ropes is the one and only Everett Mohan, friend of the show, also known as Aspiring Spike. Thanks for being here again, Everett. We love having you on. It's I think it's the pace has slowed down and I'm sad about it. Everyone's been here too reliably. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be back. You know, just time is very convoluted these days. I don't I don't know when I was on last, but it feels like I'm home being here again. <laughs> oh, that's nice. And it's it's the we love having you on for these spoiler episodes. I feel like this is your third one or something. I think like it is. That. I think it is. <laughs> it's it's perfect because it's nice to have someone else's concepts. I mean, like, you know, Dave, Stan, and myself, I think we all we all do think a little bit differently about cards. Um, but sometimes, you know, we have the group think it's nice to get an outside perspective. And we had our first episode of the Zendikar Rising spoilers last week, and this is our follow-up. So it's good to have you on again. I just love having a good player on <laughs> to talk about spoilers. It helps. People who see things we don't. Um, oh, yeah, that does make sense. This card is extremely good. <laughs> I read that completely wrong. I don't know. Even the good players have a hard time with spoilers. Uh, yeah. I'm really hoping that Shane's going to have to retract a couple of things he said last week, though. So we'll I probably see. will. I probably will. So on this week's episode, as we were mentioning, we get to do one of our favorite things, and that's ask a player that's better than us what they think about our favorite formats and about spoilers. So we're going to take a quick look at some challenges in modern and pioneer for a quick trip down breakdown lane before Zendikar rising comes out. So we can just get a little snapshot of the formats before they probably change a little bit to maybe significantly. And then in the dive down you guessed it, we're going to look at some more Zendikar rising spoilers, uh, pick Everett's brain about a few of the cards we talked about last week and also bring a lot of, this week's cards to the table. But first, housekeeping. Thank you to new patrons Dustin S. and patron Mickey S. that increased his tier. Much appreciated, everybody. Your support helps the dive down keep going. Uh, didn't have any new reviews this week, but if you feel like you have a minute to send us a little uh, love letter via iTunes, please do. We appreciate it when you do. And uh, that's it. We like we like reviews. Yeah. And if you want to support the dive down directly, you can check us out at patreon.com slash the dive down, uh, where any level of support gets access to our super secret, super wonderful Slack server and to our uh, community of capricious rogues that inhabit those areas. <laughs> um, and of course, we're also brought to you in part by manatraders.com. Uh, they are kind enough to sponsor this podcast. We've been using Mana Traders for forever, still using them. I love using them. Uh, they run cool tournaments. There's a modern tournament going on this month, correct? Uh, there is. I think the qualifying rounds are either going to be over soon after this episode comes out or maybe the week after. So check out the dates there. But um, they're running a modern tournament right now, and the Swiss will be coming up soon. Um, there's maintenance going on tomorrow, I think, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm off tomorrow. 
and maybe a few days after that. Uh, and so I'm going to have some time to get in there, get back on Magic Online, um, see what's going on during the day. And I would use manatraders.com to do that. If you use code, the dive down, when you sign up, you get 20% off your first three months and they are good and you should use them and use our code. Everett, do you ever play in the, uh, the Man and Traders events? Um, I do sometimes, uh, just mostly like in my downtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're pretty good to just kind of crush out. I, I, uh, I think it's a really cool tournament series and I, I do recommend playing in it. And the thing that's the most interesting to me, and we talked about it before, is the, the matchmaking system that they use on their website actually kind of works surprisingly well, which is like really cool to see someone invest some time and development into making a good experience for players. So check it out. Not to spend too much time singing their praises, but I think it's a good tournament series to be a part of. Dave, I think we're, we're both at the news desk this week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass it over to you to do the you know local news and I'll take sports and weather. Yeah, exactly. So like Shane said, on the breakdown section this week, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at a couple of challenges in a modern and pioneer before the land falls post Zendikar Rising release. Uh, so the first thing we wanted to look at was modern, um, which is kind of my format of choice when it comes to playing. And I, I think the best thing to do is start with the modern challenges top eight from last weekend. So I might just quickly go down the list of uh, decks that were in the top eight. One thing to note, of course, is that this is another challenge top eight that is filled with really recognizable players. Canisters in here, Musasabi, Lapless Jen, Nikachu, who's someone who I've seen on Twitter. Um, not sure if I recognize any of the other names in this top eight. One thing I wanted to ask, since we have Everton, who's a, a big Magic Online player, is is there? It seems seems like I recognize a lot of the players that end up in these top eights kind of consistently. How do you think that happens? Is there just a group of players that are really grinding out there in the challenges? Or yes, I I do think that is the case. You know, people who play challenges often play them every weekend or almost every weekend. And you probably recognize the names because they belong to some good players. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely a lot of people on these on this list is uh, players I like and respect. Yeah, so first place this week was Canister on humans. Kind of a surprise, right? Not a deck that I think Canister is known for playing. I've noticed him picking up more and more decks over the last year or so, not just kind of broken, combo-y, uh, dredgy, kci type stuff but um i thought it was interesting that he that he picked this deck up and it's worth noting too that uh humans also won the modern um qualifier event that happened on sunday of last week we're not going to talk about that event much but interesting that that was deck was on the top of both tournaments uh what do you guys think about that i think that humans is good right now i think that we're seeing a shift in the modern metagame where it seemed like for a month or two that Ponza prowess and Uro piles were just like the tier one decks. And there wasn't a lot of flexibility in that, but I think that Ponza is on the decline with Ponza on the decline decks. I, I, I do think we're just seeing a shift in the meta and specifically these Aether vile tribal decks seem to be lining up well against a lot of the fair strategies because a lot of the fair strategies are not playing sweepers because sweepers are not good against prowess specifically and I, I think humans is the tribal deck that is the best against the Uro piles 
Although we also see Merfolk on this list, which I think is pretty good against them too. And I haven't played the Humans Prowess matchup, but I imagine it's pretty close. Yeah, it's because uh, the Oriac Champion out of the board makes it pretty tough for Prowess to do what they're doing, especially if you're on the heavy red, if you're on the ground versions, if you're on the red or red black. Uh, it might be a little easier if you're flying over with Stormwing Entity, but... Ever, do you think that humans can be better in, like, a meta that is in transition or is becoming, like, more wide open? Or do you think it's kind of like a... When when there's less interaction in the more the most popular decks, then humans is going to do better, or neither? Or do you think it's just kind of, like, always okay, and sometimes people just spike with it? I, I think there's definitely truth to everything you've said. I think that there are... You know, it is always okay. I think humans experts will always be able to find success with it. But I do think it does specifically shine in metas that are evolving for two reasons. Uh, one, playing threats is usually better than playing answers when a format is evolving and humans is definitely an excellent threat deck. And also when a format is evolving and people are not cyborging cards against humans, like for the aggro decks, people are playing Ariok Champion and Celestial Purge, Aether Gust. None of these cards are very good against humans. Um, you know, I have found myself with, you know, one or two, sometimes zero cyborg cards for my humans decks recently, and I'm, I'm reevaluating that at the moment. Um, but I think humans specifically right now, or maybe maybe not right now, but last weekend, uh, people just weren't prepared for it. The cyborg cards were not there, and I think we saw that in both of these finishes. Yeah, it's been interesting to see the reactive decks move away from Wraths over the last two, three, four weeks, just because, like you said, not great against Prowess, not really useful against Uro Piles, right? So you end up with these decks that are running Path to Exile and no sweepers, and so occasionally we're getting these go-wide decks kind of showing up. Uh, Nothing too weird in Canister's build of humans, I would say, except for the fact that he ran four Unsettled Mariner main deck, which I later saw... Uh, him mention on Twitter that he would not do again. So I wouldn't necessarily take that as instructive. I just thought that was interesting that he even thought to do it. I mean, maybe he thought that he was going to face down like a lot of interaction on the other side of the board and just wanted to make it more challenging. But yeah, he ended up thinking he wasn't that great. I think the card's probably really good against Prowess, but you know, like Dave said, Ariok Champion 4 in the sideboard, I really think makes the Prowess matchup favorable. And so... Or Mandic Mariner is probably not mandatory. Yeah, you, you don't need to protect people from gut shots and lightning bolts all that much when you have such good game plan, game two and three, probably. Uh, let's talk about the second place deck. This was a pretty interesting deck as well. It was a Simic Urza kind of mid-range Uro pile, but it had Urza with no combo, so it was really reminiscent of those decks that were, were kind of made popular by Lotus Box towards the end of last year, um, but with Uro as well. And also with four Chalice of the Void main. So it was kind of like this interesting main board pre-boarding against a deck like Prowess, I imagine, that wants to cast a lot of spells. Blitz was the number one deck in the field, so I mean, maybe this is a a moment where a deck like this is going to be here for a minute and then kind of move away, but I thought it was innovative, an innovative thing to add to a deck that doesn't usually run Chalice as well, especially because, you know, Urza can use it to tap for mana and things like that. Yeah, you know, we actually, I think, saw an Urza deck win a challenge either two or last week or two weeks ago. Um, that was, I think, a, a Bant version. And just, I think this is a, a solid take on a mid-range archetype. Urza is still very powerful. Emery is still very powerful. You get to play a lot of fair blue cards. I do think the Chalices were good 
uh, metagame calls for this specific tournament. And I specifically like it out of this deck because I think this deck probably struggles against prowess if you're not main decking the chalices. I wouldn't be surprised if they get sighted out in a lot of matchups, but I um, I, I, I do like it a lot in this shell. And I, I think that the, you know, the reports of Urza's death are greatly exaggerated. Yeah, absolutely. It's always there ready to come back. It's still powerful. Not a ton of reasons for it to become on not powerful. It just needs the right moment. Yeah, I'll, I really will never forget, I think in our interview episode, um, Spike, how you said that Urza was just like the most powerful four mana card of all time. Yeah, I, I don't know if I still agree with that statement. I, I definitely feel like when Astrolabe and Opal were in the format, Urza was the best thing to do for four mana sure. by a lot. Now I kind of think it's Uro. Uro <laughs> um, <laughs> really feels like a four mana card most of the time. That's so funny. That's the joke I was going to make, but you got me. Yeah. You beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> The joke gets less and less funny every time we say Uro. And it just keeps escaping over and over again. Oh, I have questions for you later about Uro. Yeah. Number three was Mono Red Aggro, the uh, M. Hayashi Obash Prowess build piloted by Among Us. Got to third place. I think I, I unfortunately, for as much as I love Prowess, I haven't got a chance to pilot this deck yet, but it's been cool to see it uh, hanging on still. Not the most popular version of Prowess still, but it certainly keeps getting kind of high end results. What do you think about this deck? Spike. I have seen a lot of players picking it up. I've played against it. The deck seems powerful. It's weird to me to play a mono red prowess deck and just say Obosh is better than Manamorphos. Um, and I think Man- Manamorphos is, leads to some of your most powerful draws in these decks. And so for going it, it's very strange to me. But I also do understand that cards like Manamorphos do are not very consistent in that you can keep a hand with like three metamorphoses and flood out pretty often. Um, but I think it is, it is still weird to, to not see any, I also think like the first copy of Bedlam Reveler is usually pretty free in a deck like this. Like it's not usually going to be bad to draw one copy, but they're play- but they, they've just decided to play four seasoned pyromancer instead, which I think is totally fine. I think that card's really good. You have a lot of flashback spells to get value off of it. I do I also do think the Obosh decks, the, the card Obosh is good. You know, companions now that um, they've been nerfed, they are now insurance policies that you pay for with your deck building restriction, and they give you insurance against flooding out. And I do think that that's one of the main ways the prowess decks lose are due to mana flood. And so having a companion is super valuable because of that. Uh, and also the mono red mana base being less painful for the mirror is probably really important too. Yeah. And I just want to give massive props to Everett for continuing to talk while my fire alarm was just going on in the background. <laughs> I, I always, I'm always streaming through yard work and chainsaws going off outside. So I just <laughs> tune it out. Yeah. Fourth place Merfolk by Nikachu, who is a kind of well-known Merfolk player. Uh, and the thing that was interesting to me about the sideboard of this deck is that it had four chalice in the side, which is a play that I think you see out of Merfolk pretty often, along with four force negation to be able to give it a little bit of kind of reactiveness to kind of, I imagine, just kind of against big spells, essentially, uh, out of the board. So cool deck, another tribal deck, as Everett mentioned, that managed to top eight. Yeah, I like tribal decks a lot right now. I also really like spreading seas at the moment. I've been playing four spreading seas and... Uh my blue white shark blade deck and i've been liking them a lot there i think they're really well positioned in the format at the moment although we are seeing a bit of a metagame shift so maybe by the time this podcast comes out it'll be old tech it's amazing how fast tech can evolve in an eternal format huh yeah modern specifically has been just so dynamic and changing so quickly for the last for basically all year it's been 
it's been maybe my favorite year of modern ever. That's awesome. That is awesome. Um, Dave, why don't you go check check the condition of your kitchen? Make sure you're not like that the dog with flames all around him. <laughs> and so I'll take over the rest of this top eight. So our fifth place, uh, Scrown, Scrown, uh, Grixis Death Shadow. Looks like a pretty stock list. Man, Everett, what is it with this deck? Like sometimes it just seems like it's gone. It'll just like lay low in the in the weeds, and then like all of a sudden it'll just come back and be like, you know, we'll just take take fifth place in a top eight might take a couple, you know, Grix, Grix is death shadow. Like when, when I think the thing that people say, and I want to check it via you is, is Grixis death shadow only really good when stubborn denial is good. Or do you think it has broader play than that? Uh, I think it has a broader play than that. I think the best shadow players will basically always have a winning record with it. Just like the best players of, of many different tier two and tier three decks in modern, uh, but I, I actually think the card Death Shadow and Gurmag Angler, both of them are really good at the moment. You know, a lot of the removal in Modern is red at the moment, and these big one-mana black creatures line up very well against it. There's also a decent bit of combo decks, like Ad Nauseam, that are trying to fight against um, the Prowess decks, and Shadow is really good against those. I've actually been playing a few different Shadow variants, not really any Grixis, but some Esper and some Black White, and I found a lot of success with those, just... The card Death Shadow is pretty good right now. Yeah, I saw that on your uh, on Twitter yesterday. That was pretty awesome. The uh, the five of that you got with the Orzov deck. So keep an eye out for that, everybody. Sixth place. Oh, you're back. I'm back. Okay, you're coming. You're taking over these. That's good because I got a lot to talk about later. So sixth place, mono white devotion in modern with a bunch of wild stuff by Artem <laughs> Kuhin, who is a name I do not recognize. Border Post? I think I played against this deck today. <laughs> oh, really? I lost to it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's essentially kind of like a... I mean, it's mono-white devotion that that tries to end with Heliod Ballistic Combo, but it has a bunch of different stuff in this deck to help kind of like ramp out devotion, make Nithos good, get a bunch of planes into play via things like... Knight of the White Orchid and Weathered Wayfarer and seven different white border posts main, which I have to think are kind of there to help you make sure that you have, you keep hitting your land drops and keep ramping up and also up your devotion as you go up because the border posts each add a single pip from that. It They're also good with a Weathered Wayfarer. You pick up a land and then you can tap your Weathered Wayfarer to search your, land, your library for any uh, any land you want. Yeah, and even help you a little bit when you have Knight of the White Orchid and you want to make sure that you're behind on lands to play it. Um, so yeah, so there's an interesting synergy there. It's It seems like a little fussy to me when you think about like stuff that's really good in modern, but then when you think about, hey, you know, Ballista and Heliod for the kill is still pretty good. And then also it gets to run, do things like run four Oriok Champions main, which is a good card to be able to get a life gain trigger off of and also... Um, pretty good like pre-boarded tech against prowess essentially and the last thing that it does that's like the the mono white devotion deck from pioneer is it runs a protection package kind of like um i forget the name of the gideon card what's the name of that gideon's intervention that the mono white deck was running in pioneer this deck runs four ley line of sanctity which is really great with nykthos of course it runs three ruined halo main and it runs four mastery of the unseen the fate reforged limited format mega bomb and actually it was a card that i think was pretty good in standard too because i remember some wild green white token matchups that had like 500 life or stuff like that um so it's an interesting riff on the pioneer version not sure 
where it's going to go from here, but it's interesting that you played against the deck today. I mean, do you think this is a thing that could hang around? I think that this is a good example of a, a deck that can take advantage of a very homogenized metagame where there's tons of red prowess decks that are very popular. And then the fair decks that are trying to beat on the red prowess decks are not prepared at all to play against a deck like this. Um, and so I think that this is the type of deck that if you are very sure of the type of format you're walking into, you can do well, but it's probably not this type of deck that you can just play week in and week out and do well with it. Still sweet to see some kind of innovative deck building and porting a strategy from one format to another. Last two decks, two really notable players, uh, White Green Titan by Musasabi in seventh place, and then uh, Devoted Devastation by Lablishan in eighth place. One thing I didn't think I would see coming is that there would be a top eight with seven Eld- Eldamary's calls in it. And from what I can tell, only, what, four Uros in this top eight. So there are more Eldamary's calls than Uros in this top eight. Um, but the White Green Titan deck is pretty interesting. This particular version of it had a ton of one-ofs, so I think it was really relying on that kind of like tutor ability of, of Eldamary's call to get the answer that you want. But essentially, is this deck kind of like Titan Shift? basically like a similar strategy in a, in a sense where you're just kind of like ramping and trying to get Titan going as fast as possible without using amulet or what do you think is the, the kind of special thing about this particular strategy ever the, this new white green one. So I think this card or so this deck is, uh, I believe was an innovation by uh, Francisco F Paul was, I can never say his last name. Uh, he started off playing Aether Vial in it, and most people have cut the vials from the deck. But the the big idea is that you can take advantage of Elvish Reclaimer, which is an M21 one-mana elf that you can uh, tap it and uh, spend two mana to sacrifice a land and search your library for a land card. And the big, you know, combo, Splinter Twin combo, is to sacrifice Flagstones of Trakir, which whenever you sacrifice it or whenever it goes to the graveyard, you get to search your library for a planes. So that's not only ramping you, but it's letting you get Field of the Dead going. Uh, you have lots of really interesting tutor targets like Ghost Quarter, Bajuka Bog to go with it. Um, and so this is really just a mid-range deck that's trying to let your Elvish Reclaimer give you a lot of value and accelerate you. And it's you can play board control with Dryad Valakit. And you have Eladarmi's Call to tutor up your specific tools for the matchup so I, I would definitely just view this as somewhere in between titan shift and amulet titan you know i think that the very best primeval titan players will know when to select red green valakit when to select amulet titan when to select this when to play with karn the great creator and i don't play enough with these decks to really tell you which one to do at the moment but i do think this deck is real and is and if you'd like casting primeval titan you should learn this and try to figure out what kind of metas you want to play this version in and then last, as we mentioned, Devoted Devastation by Laplace Jean, well-known for playing uh, this style of deck, making a top eight. All right, the overall meta, really quickly, the top three decks, kind of as ever hinted in this overall meta were, is it Blitz with three decks, Uro Piles with three decks, Gruel Midrange with three decks? There were even more Prowess decks, essentially. There were two more Mono Red Aggro, which I'm pretty sure were the Obosh decks, and then also two more Luris Aggro decks. So essentially, you had seven Prowess decks in the top 32. In my mind, anyway, I know that they're different flavors. We did an episode about how they're each different flavors, but um, still a lot of Monastery Swift Spear floating around in this this metagame, essentially. Little less Uro, it feels like, made it into this top 32, and definitely a little bit less Gruel Midrange with this kind of other stuff kind of bubbling up to the top. And a lot of one-ups, in this, there were 
I think eight or nine one ofs. Pretty interesting to see as well. Do you think that this kind of does this top top thirty two kind of illustrate some of the meta shift that you were kind of hinting towards earlier? Yeah, I think it does. Um, you know, this this is an incredibly diverse top thirty two, one of the most diverse I've ever seen, and. I do think it is an accurate reflection of what I've been experiencing in modern lately. It seems like many different decks are viable. And if you have unique tech or strategies or way you're attacking the, you know, the, the prowess decks and the Uro piles and the Ponza decks, you are going to find success, especially if your deck is also, you know, lining up well against the, like the, the tribal decks that seem to be on the rise the, the format is is very much in flux, and I think people are getting better at playing against Uro. Uh, you know, Uro is a very obnoxious card. It's a card I don't enjoy playing with very often, but it's a card I, I do play with. But I, I do think that there are lots of answers to it, and I do think the card is probably not just incredibly dominant in the format, despite, you know, uh, I think the prevailing mindset that it is. Certainly this week. I mean, it's, I've definitely noticed that it feels a little bit on the retreat for whatever reason. And so I guess it's nice to hear that a card that people are banging the drum for banning a lot is potentially being a little solved, especially in a format as powerful as modern. So fingers crossed that we don't have to go through more upheaval, I guess. Um, I guess the last thing I wanted to ask before we kind of leave the modern chapter of this is, you know, what, what have your favorite decks been lately to play and kind of you know did you have any stuff that you wanted to talk about as far as just what you've been doing the last couple of weeks yeah sure um i've been playing a lot of blue white shark blade you know stone blade with four shark typhoons um i've found a lot of success with it lately i've, I've been winning a ton with it i played i didn't play i, I actually i did play in this challenge but i was double queuing in the ptq and i made a mistake in the ptq and i immediately dropped from the challenge because i was double queuing um, and I, you know, I, I did really well in the PTQ. I, um, I just have been really liking the main deck spreading seas, like answering Utopia Sprawl, answering the Tron decks, which are popular. Uh, it's just also just disrupting your prowess opponent's mana is really relevant. Um, I really like the shark blade deck with main deck spreading seas. I've been messing around a lot with Sultai Gifts, which is an Uro pile that's trying to take advantage of Gifts Ungiven being very synergistic with Mystic Sanctuary and Uro. So a lot of times you're going to Gifts for Uro, Life from the Loam, sometimes a Fetchland to get a Mystic Sanctuary, sometimes a Lonely Sandbar to dredge your loam, and then a really powerful uh, sorcery to get, uh, like Hour of Promise, Splendid Reclamation, Damnation, Time Warp. And I, I really enjoyed that shell. I actually think on a raw power level, that is the most powerful Uro pile. However, the deck is incredibly difficult to play. Gifts and Given is just a really skill-intensive card. And the, the deck is way more vulnerable to Graveyard Hate and Ashiok than the other Uro piles. But I, I've been liking those decks, um, or that deck specifically. I've been spending a lot of time tuning it, and I think it's uh, been a lot of fun. I've also been playing Orzov and Esper Shadow. Um, you know, it started off as a donation deck, which I do on my stream where people can pay, and I'll play play a league. And I went 13-2 and two over three donation decks with Esper Shadow. And I ended up transitioning to Orzov Shadow for more consistent mana. And I wanted to play four Ranger Captains. I wanted to play a couple. I wanted to play Orzov Charm mostly because I think the card is fun. And I, I've been doing well with that as well. And I mostly think for the, the, the two biggest takeaways is if you're not turning on Delirium and if you're not really in on Delving Gurmag Angler, you don't really need Street Wraith so much. The card Street Wraith is a card that can lead you to getting flooded out or mana screwed too often. Just a card that just draws a card and provides no selection. 
um, will uh, lean you towards those higher ends of variance. Because it kind of leans you into loose takes or loose keeps, I mean, right? And, and it's and it's a bad top deck. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, loose keeps. And I have not missed the, sha- the, the street rates. Growing my shadows hasn't been a problem, especially with four silent clearing in the deck. And I also haven't missed team or battle rage because I've been playing uh, four giver of runes to get through blockers and four ranger captain to stop the combo decks a little bit. And I also kind of think that team or battle rage is a little bit of a crutch in the shadow decks where you always, where whenever you cast team or battle rage, you're winning the game. So you think this card is really, really good, but I think you're winning a lot of those games anyways. And a lot of times you're losing cause you've drawn team or battle rage instead of a threat or a removal spell. Splashing red is not free. Um, you know, it's kind of like Tindles of Agony is the best card in Legacy because every time you cast it, you win the game. I think that that uh, that attitude of Team of Battle Rage is kind of the same. People can't get away from it, but I think that they probably should be, and I've really liked both the Esper and the Orzhov shells. Awesome. I mean, I, I gotta say, when I saw that Uro Gifts deck show up, the first time I was like, this is some next level stuff. And I was immediately like, this is a beautiful d- deck design that I don't think I will ever play because like you said, Gifts Ungiven is not an easy card to play, even in a deck that's pretty scripted, like Storm. I think a lot of the times you kind of, especially without a lot of reps, you're kind of like, what am I supposed to be picking out here? So I, in a deck that is not trying to get to a deterministic plan like Storm is, where you are trying to figure out like the best value pile, that seems pretty tough to figure out what to do in a lot of different situations. Yeah, it was, you know, it went through like many different drafts. It was one of the most fun decks I've, one of the most fun I've ever had brewing a deck. It started off as Bant. I was playing Unbearer Rights in the sideboard for a long time. I was Sultai splashing the rights and I like just straight Sultai more. And and even though I built the deck, it's incredibly hard to play. And I have been making a ton of mistakes while I play it. <laughs> but when, I, when, I, when I'm playing tight with the list, I actually think it's incredibly good. And if you like Gifts Ungiven, uh, you can go to, uh, you know, by twitter.com slash aspiring spike and find the list. And I think it's pretty, pretty good. Awesome. Shane, you want to take us through some thoughts on pioneer? Yeah, we promised some pioneer content. Uh, we'll have to get through this quickly because we do want to save time for spoilers. So what I thought we could do here is just look at the two latest challenges that took place over the last weekend, see what people are doing well with there. Cause we haven't looked at pioneer too closely lately. And we looked at it a couple episodes in a row after the uh, the unbannings and things like that, or the unbanning, at least. So first, like Dave mentioned in the modern section, some of our best performing players here in these top 32s are the people who are atop the trophy leaderboard in like the Pioneer and modern leader leaderboards on Magic Online. We've got Claudio, who's the trophy leader by a good margin on uh, on Sunday's challenge, finished first. Second place was the fifth place player on the leaderboard, Harry 13. You know, we see a lot of names that we mention all the time, like Poker's Wizard, Batuina, Doom Switch, Gold Dukat, uh, CWS, which is Caleb Shearer, uh, Misplaced Ginger, Indian Pancake. They all showed up in these two challenges as well. And just, like Magic Online is just full of killers, right? Yeah, it's just a good reminder that if you want to get good at Magic, it's hard to beat the player pool that you have access to just utterly destroying you that you can find on Magic Online. And that's the best way to get better is just play against good people. Yeah. So what I want to do is let's look at these combined top 32s and look at some interesting things happening in Pioneer. Because last time we looked at the meta, we saw things like Mono Green Walkers, Niv to Light, Mono Black Aggro. They were kind of ruling the roost. They were our tier one, tier 1.5. You know, Azorius Spirits was up there. Things are different four or five weeks later. 
team of reclamation is 17% of our top 32. Uh, it's not much different than the last time we talked about wrecking the deck construction, but people are just realizing that this is probably the most powerful thing you can be doing in the format. You've got your board control spells, you've got your counter spells. You can control that early and mid game. And then the end game is, seems up your alley ever, which, you know, mana, the mana production of reclamation, you got shark typhoon, you got, you got Uro. You probably don't like that, but you close those games out pretty effectively. Yeah. I, it's so weird to me to not see any copies of dig through time in any of these decks. I guess, I guess Uro is just better than dig through time. I don't know. I, you know, oh, goodness. It's, it's, I mean, both cards are legal in the format. Uh, and you could even argue that Dig Through Time plays better with Reclamation than Uro does, but they're still playing Uro instead. I'm not saying it's definitely better to play Uro, but it's wild to me that it <laughs> that uh, Uro is uh, seeing more play than Dig. Yeah, unbelievable. But yeah, 17%. Pretty darn good. Um, Esper Control at 11%. So this is another, this is the same deck, same Walker, Enchantment Heavy, 80-card Yorian build in the main, and they have Yorian, of course, in the Companion Zone as well. This is our second most popular and performing deck in the meta, 11%. And then we go down to Orozov Auras, Mono Black Aggro, and Jeskai Luka, all at 8%. So Orozov Auras appears to be back not much really seems to have changed with the deck itself there's a few various like tech creatures like there might be some hushbringers to stop etb triggers there might there there might be like a danto vanguard which i think uh is good for like keeping your creature alive and also beating down pretty effectively like if you don't really care about your life total that much a danto vanguard can uh, get indestructible uh selfless savior might show up in a, in various numbers, a, a new uh, sacrifice type creature to keep your other creatures alive. Luris is now standard. Well, continues to be standard in the companion zone, just in case, because why not? But yeah, so like, you know, Mono Black Aggro, Jeskai Luka, Orzov Oros, that's, that's slightly less popular than Black Aggro used to be, but we are, we are seeing Orzov and Luka creep up a little bit. And then we get to the decks we saw at the top before Niv to Light, Mono Green Walkers, and Mono Black Vampires at 6%. So Niv and Mono Green are falling back down to like some sort of typical normal percentages for your know, normal tier two decks. People maybe are moving on to other more powerful decks like Team Iraq or uh, Esper Control, even, or maybe people have just learned how to fight against these strategies or people just want something new or different. I haven't played a lot of Pioneer lately. I So, Everett, I wasn't sure what you thought about the fact that, you know, I think everybody, when the big bannings happened, thought that Niv to Light was going to sit atop the metagame for a while here because mid-range was just, was just going to be kind of the best. But it's interesting to see Teamer kind of take what might be part of that role. Instead, you know, t- Reclamation, I think, is a hard deck to sort of like archetype because it's you know when Uro's there you kind of think it's probably a controlish mid-range deck a little different from from Niv but maybe it's eating up some of that market share I don't know what you think I would probably classify Reclamation as a ramp controlled deck um, and I think Reclamation decks from my experience in Pioneer which hasn't been a ton recently but I've been playing a little bit I, I think that the Reclamation decks are really favored against the Niv-Mizzet decks in my experience and I think that that's probably why we see Niv declining. Is that even maybe Niv is good against everything, but Rec, but Rec is you know rising in dominance. There does seem to be a pretty healthy fluctuation in the metagame. 
Um, I, I think that a combination of modern being incredibly popular and historic being pretty pushed on arena is really hurting pioneer. I think that a lot of its player base, you know, left when the, the format was, you know, so unplayable in the past. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not returning to, you know, the numbers we were seeing before Theros got printed. Uh, but I, I hope that Zendikar, uh, maybe shoots, uh, shoots some life into pioneer. I'll definitely be playing some, some pioneer when Zendikar comes out. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that as well. Finishing up our combined top 32 mono red Lotus combo, about 5%. So it's a slight dip from mono red, uh, Lotus combo kind of sticks around in the, you know, 5% ish area other about 20%. So what's not there. So the Jun sacrifice deck that was built around Bolas's Citadel has fallen back down into perhaps reality. There's only a single copy making both top 32s. Azorius Spirits, that made up 7% of the meta four or five weeks ago, is com- completely absent. Only a single Bant Spirits deck is in the field. Sultai Delirium, totally absent in both top 32s. It was over 6% of the field previously. Uh, Winota as well. Uh, absent. No one noted decks that I saw in here. So it's a, that's a pretty big shift when we see decks that were, you know, six and seven percent of the field, five, uh, like four percent for Winota, just kind of nowhere. Uh, it may, maybe it's an aberration. Maybe it's just a consolidation of power. It's hard to say for sure because I haven't been playing a ton. I've always felt like the Jund Citadel decks are not very good. Uh, the mana curve is all over the place. You're really soft to like rest in peace and counter spells on your citadel and aggro decks like feel to some extent um it's, it's also really funny to me how it seemed like uh, you know people were saying that sultai delirium and, and niv to light were just going to be so so dominant and pioneer after the bands and sultai is really really falling out of favor when winota being absent is weird to me i think winota is pretty good in the format um at least that's been my perception the man i think the biggest problem is the mana I think that it really, it really, the mana gets a lot better when Zendikar comes out with the um, the new double sided lands, and so I, I could definitely see Winota picking back up in popularity when Zendikar comes out. So yeah, I mean, I think Pioneer's kind of an, I mean, it's it's definitely transitioned over the past five weeks or so, but I think it's nothing crazy is happening. I think sort of we see the same melange of decks in different configurations uh, on the top 32 list. So uh, I hope that Zendikar does blow things up a little bit. I, I really am hopeful for the pathways, especially in the allied decks and perhaps some three color decks to improve things there. Uh, that would be nice to bring a little bit more balance of power between the enemy and allied mana. But everyone's heard me talk about that a lot. Yeah, so I think we just have to just, uh, well, we will be talking about both formats in the weeks to come after Zendikar becomes legal uh, online and in paper, if you're somewhere, uh, perhaps not in the United States, where you can be playing (laughs) paper magic. So, but keep your ear to the breakdown. And with that, let's transition over uh, into the dive down, where we're going to be talking about Zendikar Rising Spoilers Part 2. So stay with us. Right, and we're back and um as is normal on our spoiler shows you know we have a little bit of a quote-unquote methodology for how we look at cards here on the dive down 
you know, one mana spells, two mana creatures, three mana walkers, unique cards, cheap cards, cards that draw you cards. These are the kind of things that we looked at. If you want to hear a little bit more in depth about that, check out last week's episode. Before we dive into spoilers all the way, I did want to ask our uh, special guest, Everett, uh, if he had any thoughts about how he looks at a spoiler when he's when he's kind of evaluating cards, if there's a way that you think about things, or if you just kind of take it card by card and just kind of, as you see things come up on Twitter, go, oh, that's great. That goes in the I should remember this pile versus uh, chaff. Yeah, so I, it's, I'm very, very uh, not rigid with my evaluation. Like, I don't specifically search out one mana spells, cheap spells, cheap creatures. I try to take everything into account every single card if i can really evaluate it compare it to other things that are popular is this a better version of something that's being played does this synergize well with something that's uh that's good at the moment and i i think that you know you, you definitely get a feel for it and you can you know see what card has potential in constructed but you know there's just there have been too many cards that have slipped by that you know you've dismissed because it's four mana or because it um you know, is just a little bit off the wall and it's in a design space that's never been seen before. I think Fires of Invention is a pretty good example, uh, at least for me as a card I evaluated pretty lowly. Um, and and so I just try to keep an open mind with every single card. And I also try to not really form a super hard opinion until every single card from the set is spoiled because every card matters in context with the other cards in the set especially when we're getting a lot of um a lot of cards specifically in zendikar where with the the land spell flip cycle you know i think that there are a lot of decks in eternal formats that are going to want to play some number of these but whichever ones they want is really going to matter in the context of the of the set uh when it, in, it, in its entirety yeah and it's interesting you bring those up because definitely you know we spent some time last week talking about the land spell cards the flip lands and I was really curious to get your take on both of the different kind of categories that we have so right at the end of the breakdown we started to talk about the pathway lands a little bit I think that coming out of last week we were a little bit kind of like maybe it feels to us like the uh, the pathways are more helpful in Pioneer than anywhere else. But I was really curious kind of if you might be willing to tell us what you think about these cards, where they might fit, if you think they have any potential for modern play as well, or just kind of what what you think about the pathways in general, because evaluations from people have been kind of all over the place. Yeah, I, I do think they're hard to evaluate. I really like these lands a lot. I think that they're very, very interesting. They... I think are inherently very powerful now they fix uh either of your I, I doubt any deck that's more than two colors in modern is going to want to play this but i think that decks that have two color decks that want all their lands entered into play untapped uh lands that are potentially worried about cards like boil uh, uh decks that are potentially that have not a lot of two mana symbols in their cost of their spells or potentially heavier one color and lighter on the other color, I think could definitely want these cards. You know, I've been playing a blue-red through the breach deck that plays no islands to dodge boil and play it boil in the sideboard. And there's the blue-red dual land is immediately going to be a four of in that deck. I can't believe we're in a world where we have to dodge boil. It's, you know, you can blame Uro and Mystic Sanctuary mostly for that. Um, I've been dodging boil since 1998, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I have a similar feeling about those where it feels like these are really good lands for really assertive decks that care a lot about untapped lands, don't care as much about fetching, 
maybe because these these you know you you'll get to pick, but you have to commit for the long term with these lands. And um, so for me, I definitely was sitting here thinking, you know, I really like playing the blue red blitz deck. Maybe it's going to get less good in the meta, but maybe that's a card. That these are a card that end up in there that gives you even more consistent untapped lands without pain on the first couple of turns, along with your spire bluff canals. But I just can't see like specifically that deck really ever wanting it to enter as a blue source. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't played much of that deck, but it's so so red heavy with just that light blue splash. And I don't think I think that these lands are going to want you to be more so two colors without super stringent mana requirements uh, is gonna, is my prediction. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I do view the prowess deck as having having pretty tough mana requirements just with all that one red symbols. Not being able to end up with something that's just an island on the board, essentially. Okay. I mean, that's good to know, too. Do you think that... So you think that these are good cards. They'll see some play in certain decks. In Pioneer, we talked about how they're going to help a lot of allied strategies, probably, especially allied aggressive strategies, since they're just kind of the best option there. Shane, have you changed any of your thinking about Pathways in the last week, or is that kind of where you are still? No, I I'm, I think I'm more confident about my, my Pathway take than I am about my Spell Land take, like the Flippy Lands. I think, you know, I'm I usually undervalue flexibility uh, i think the flippy lands uh and, you know again this is a take i think we should get from ever i think the flippy lands are probably better than i think they are but i think that i think that the there will be a time and a place that the pathways get played and i think it's going to take some experimentation to figure out when and how many and I, that's what i think is great about them is that they're not obvious you know what i mean it's just kind of like man maybe they'll be good maybe they'll be okay you know let's let's play with our numbers here between fast lands and and pathways and i think that's what's cool about it it's honestly these lands make me so frustrated that fetch lands are so dominant and modern because if fetch lands weren't then you'd have really interesting deck building decisions for your two and three color mana bases that would include these lands, fast lands, filter lands, man lands. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. Which is one of my favorite parts of pioneers brewing the, uh, the mana bases. And I expect these to be definitely good in pioneer. Here you go. All right. So the second kind of cycle of lands, let's say, although it's a giant number of cards in the Zendikar set are the double faced spell lands Flippy lands, Dave. Yeah, the flipping lands. Sorry, land spell lands. Um, I'd love to talk about one in particular, and that is uh, Agadim's Awakening, which wasn't spoiled last week when it came out. And this is the mythic black land. And I, I actually kind of think this might be the best one. We'll, we'll see, but maybe it's just because it fits in the decks, a couple of decks that I like to play. But Agadim's Awakening is X, black, black, black. It's a sorcery. Return from your graveyard to the battlefield. Any number of target creature cards that each have a different converted mana cost x or less on the back side it is a black mana source that deals three damage if you want it to come into play untapped i mean i think i've seen people throw this into shadow already but i think it's possible that there's other decks that can just run this too i think it's most likely just to be something that you cast on five mana you get a two cmc card and a one cmc card back from your graveyard there's probably other powerful places that can go maybe you bring back a mem knight with it for some reason somewhere <laughs> But what do you what do you think of this card, Albert? I like it a lot. I think it's going to be very good in two color shadow decks. It's possible that three color ones want to play it. It's a huge bummer to me that you can't traverse for it uh, because it's always a sorcery in every zone besides the play. But I do think it's good in shadow decks, just specifically because shadow is so powerful for one mana. Then you know you often have 
you know, Tarmogoyf or Ranger Captain to get back with it. I, I in the Orzhov Shadow deck I've been playing. I do plan on playing. I think two copies to start off with. That's awesome. Um, you got your like Scourge the Skyclave on two now too. You know what I'm saying? Maybe. <laughs> uh, I actually I really feel like Scourge the Skyclaves does not go in traditional Shadow decks. I think that you need to be able to deal your opponent damage more aggressively than traditional Shadow decks do. I think that you need to either be pairing it with Lava Spike or Monastery Swift Spear, Wild in the Cattle. Because um, the, the Shadow decks, you know, like a lot of times they hit their opponent right now for the first time on turn four with their Death Shadow. And this card really doesn't want you to do that. There are a lot of modern decks that stay at 20 life for for a while. Oh, that's too bad. All right, I got a little check on my pre-order there. Um, so how about the rest of the spell? lands just kind of in general are there any other ones that stand out i to me i still feel like this mechanic is super powerful and it just feels like there's going to be a whole bunch of people that are playing these in different places i mean you were talking a minute ago about like the interesting kind of mana based decisions that come from building with new land cards essentially this is a whole new dimension that we haven't dealt with before in any format ever um, the honestly, the only one that seems incredibly, incredibly powerful to me is Turn Timber Symbiosis, the Greed Mythic one. That one seems like a four of in the uh, Amulet Titan decks. You know, it's it's a tap land that it can't enter untapped, which is also very powerful to turn one amulet. But you can just play it tapped and untapped for amulet, and it's also seven mana to probably hit a Primeval Titan or at least get a good chance at it. At least a Dryad of the Groves, which gets three counters, and just that. It's it's that seems very very good to me in Titan to both be a land and a Titan seems bananas. Besides specifically that one, um, I think that basically all of the other ones are fine and maybe archetype role players, but will overall not be incredibly dominant or impactful. I I really have been viewing all of these cards basically as charms like Celestia Charm, Archmage's Charm, where they have multiple modes that are overcosted where you know it's not overcosted to play a tap land but you know it's it's similar to that to not an effect you're happy with but it gets that power and the versatility um and i don't think any of them are going to be besides maybe this green one going to be too crazy dominant but they are a lot of them are interesting and i see a lot of deck building potential with them and i think they're going to be a lot of fun and i think overall they're a hit for me but I see a lot of people freaking out about the power level, thinking that they're too good, but I don't expect that to be the case. So maybe they're kind of like one or two ofs to, that help you smooth your mana versus getting action late in the game, and that's just kind of the slot they fit. It, exactly, especially with the London Mulligan. Magic for a while has been very much about, in standard, pioneer, modern, curving out and getting on the board ahead of your opponent and staying ahead on board. And all of these cards are bad at doing that. Um, and I think that these cards maybe would have been incredibly warping and dominant five years ago. But now we have the London Mulligan. We have tons of other mana sinks to reduce mana screw and mana flood. We have Adventure, Escape, uh, Companion, you know, and, and this mechanic as well. All of these are intended to reduce non-games and magic due to mana screw and mana flood and i think that that is good design um but i don't think that these cards are going to be so so warping awesome shane how you feeling about your take now <laughs> mm, mildly confident i guess uh what i wanted to do though is is ever 
you know, since we did cover a list of cards last week, uh, I ran these by you. Is there anything that we talked about last week that you really want to hit before we move on to new cards? Yeah, I, I noted in the show notes. Let me see. Of these, I'm interested in talking about um, Cleansing Wildfire. I really like that card. Um, and we already talked about the Black Flipland. Oh, the new Nahiri is also a card I want to talk about. Oh, Stan will be happy if it, if you have good things to say. I have great things to say about the new Nahiri. So we shared the list of cards that we talked about last week with you too, Everett. And you called out two cards in particular that you wanted to talk about. Uh, one of them was the new Nahiri, which Stan kind of vociferously spoiled last week before he disappeared on his honeymoon. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say about this card. I, I think Nahiri is great. Um, she definitely comes with a lot of deck building restrictions, but I think she does a lot of really powerful things. Specifically with Colossus Hammer is where she's really interesting to me. Not only does she find your Colossus Hammer, and digging six cards is a lot with that minus two, uh, but she also makes a creature and equips the hammer to that creature all in one card. And she's, she you know, beyond just that really powerful synergy with Colossus Hammer, she's good with Batterskull. She's good with uh, the the swords that are already seeing play in modern. If you want to play her in modern, um, she's her plus one gives you board advantage. Her minus two gives you card advantage, and her minus three, which she survives when she minus threes, gives you removal, which is incredibly powerful on a four mana planeswalker with a decent amount of loyalty. Um, the card I could see being main or side in the existing Boros Hammer decks. I could see it being in the main deck of uh, Stoneblade decks in modern. I could see it creating a kind of a hammer archetype in Pioneer with Colossus Hammer and Sigarda's Aid. I just love the new Nihiri. Wow, somewhere. Yeah, Stan, Stan's just nodding, stroking his chin. He's Yes, he, yes. Exactly. He's in a vorte- vortex in New Mexico somewhere feeling a, a disturbance in the magnetic field, as Everett's saying. A lot of things that he said last week as well, oh, actually. Awesome, he awesome. He was very pro this card definitely loved what what you said about making a token and equipping something that has a prohibitive cost to it immediately shane and i were both a little bit kind of like really for four mana and i was kind of like i feel like this card kind of goes with winota because it searches for winota in pioneer but i'm i'm totally understanding what you guys are saying here too especially when you look at the kind of broken aspect of something like the colossus hammer package which is kind of you know it's a deck that's out there that's kind of floating around that had some real results people were calling it the new infect for a while so maybe um i could definitely see there being something there so you're you're looking forward to brewing around that yeah i'll definitely be casting the card a few times i also love just guy nahiri the old version with nahiri the harbinger and i think nahiri is my favorite planeswalker character wow i'm gonna embrace my timmy so i'm just excited to cast the card again <laughs> she's so angry She's like, oh, she's, they, she's angry in every story now. It's interesting because originally she was sort of like, didn't have quite as deep of a story. And then in Shadows Over Innistrad, they were like, no, I'm here to kill you, Soren. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I'm just angry. Yeah, yeah. I just love it. Uh, and then the other card you point out that you want to talk about is a card that I think we had an interesting discussion about last week too, which is Cleansing Wildfire. So I'd be curious to see where, what you think about this card, which as a reminder is the two mana non-basic land destruction spell that lets your opponent go and get a new land but it can trips i love i love everything about this card honestly i love that no longer is your cyborg hate against tron going to let you still lose to turn three tron on the draw i i love that it fixes your mana when you've been blood mooned in modern you can just target your own land and get a basic that's not 
you know, in play. I really think it's interesting in Pioneer alongside Dark Steel Citadel and Cascading Cataracts. There's no rampant growth in Pioneer, but with Dark Steel Citadel or Cascading Cataracts, you can turn this card into rampant growth plus draw a card. So I'm kind of thinking about um, a Fires of Invention, Karn the Great Creator, uh, Cleansing Wildfire deck, trying to use it as a rampant growth in Pioneer. Um, it is also it also works with Flagstones of Trocaire in Modern to be rampant growth draw a card. And, you know, so then you could have Boom Bust and this card as a two mana spell that wants you to have a special land in play. I don't think that those decks are very good, and I don't think this card makes those decks good, but it's interesting, and I, I like it a lot. Fascinating. I mean, I, I will say this is another card that Stan took a, a different angle on than kind of Stan, Shane and I. We were both kind of like, this card's really good. It's great out of your sideboard. It's great as land hate. I love the idea of having it around to help you with Blood Moon and decks where you're running it for land hate anyway. It's a really smart idea. Uh, Stan was kind of pointed out the Darksteel Citadel interaction as well, but he was mostly thinking about it from, is it... Uh, the is it in soul kind of area where it's just kind of like you play it for value in that package, which could be an interesting kind of thing to do as well. One thing that I thought about last week was playing it with Leon and Arbiter and it kind of taxes, taxes the build, which I think could be another place for it too. So I think, I, I think it's really tough just on rate. Like this card is just really good on rate. And so it feels like it's going to end up somewhere powerful kind of no matter what we do. It's got so much text on it for two mana and it draws a card. Like I, it's hard to put more on a playable card, you know? Yeah, it seems so flexible and interesting. And I actually think it's going to be a pretty fun card for the format because it's not its not really land destruction, you know? It's like, I think it's going to make people play more fair and honest mana bases, which I like. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get in some new cards, some new stuff. Okay. Let's do it. This is like no particular order, right? Because like, I think we've got a different mix. We've got a, a mix of cards I think are like semi-sure things and like kind of like maybe just cool things. I want to start with a big maybe just cool thing. Roiling Vortex, one in a red, enchantment. So this is not the, this is not a crazy red enchantment. This is a cheap red enchantment. So again, that's, that we, get, we have a cost of two. That's good. At the beginning of each player's upkeep, Roiling Vortex deals one damage to them. Whenever a player casts a spell, if no mana was spent to cast that spell, Roiling Vortex deals five damage to that player. Red, activated ability. Your opponents can't gain life this turn. So this card's doing a lot of different things, right? So it's just like it's consistent pings, uh, which can do things like, let's say, trigger if a player lost life this turn, or even just some random something like that, right? It's a ping. It's consistent. It happens. If... It has certain types of hate, you know, if, if no mana was spent to cast that spell. So that's things like, you know, Cascade or, you know, certain like certain spells in Dredge or things like that. So not exactly every deck or even, you know, even in Dredge, it's only really good against like what, like Creeping Chill or something like that. Oh, you don't cast Creeping Chill for some reason. It's oh, just, that's right. <laughs> Creeping Chill is my is my least favorite card in Magic. Yeah, I think you and Dave. Um, and And then red, you can just pay a red. And your opponents can't gain life. Can't gain life this turn. Typically, pretty decent for a red mage to have that ability. I think it's interesting, but I don't know. Like, does it do? Does it do too much? Not that great. Is it doing enough to be awesome as like a flexible sideboard card? Is it part of a main deck build? I, I think the power is definitely there. I think that all three modes on the card are good. All three modes on the card won't always be relevant. Uh, definitely seems like it is a great option for red mages in the sideboard. My biggest hesitance to, you know, 
put it in the main deck with, is just the fact that it's really bad in the red mirrors. It's really bad against opposing aggro decks because it's a symmetrical effect with the ping. So, you know, if the Seas play at Modern and Pioneer, I think that in the, if it's in the main deck, it's going to be because a format is, you know, playing a lot of Force of Negations, Mistress Bobbles, Uros. Um, but if if not, if that's not the case and the format is more diverse, I think this is an excellent sideboard card in Modern and Pioneer. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, I, th- I just, of course, look at this card and see Sulfuric Vortex, which is better, right? I mean, it's three mana, it de- deals two damage, but... There's a lot of stuff going on here that makes up for it. It's just a good tool for a burn deck or an aggressive red deck to have access to. And while I think the text on here kind of helps with stuff like Uro, you know, the red activated ability helps with nerfing life gain and, you know, helps with creeping chill, even though it doesn't help you from getting damage, it keeps them from gaining life at least. Um, so I, it's just seems like a lot of stuff here. The only thing I keep wondering is like, you know, you already have a sort of sulfuric vortex effect in Eidolon in some ways. And like, is this going to compete for slots with that? Because I think that this card just loses to Eidolon. But I guess if you have, if you want even more of kind of pinging effects, more kind of punishing effects, this is a good card to have access to. And I'll definitely have it around. So uh, another card that I thought was cool that I wanted to ask you about, especially since we just talked about Nahiri and Colossus Hammer, is Thieving Skydiver. This card's so cool. Which is Merfolk Rogue. It has Kicker X. X cannot be zero. It's a flying 2-1 for one and a blue, and it says, when Thieving Skydiver enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, gain control of target artifact with converted mana cost X or less. If that artifact is an equipment, attach it to Thieving Skydiver. Very tricky and cute, but the only reason I threw this in here was because it can equip your Colossus Hammer to itself for two mana or for three mana. So, oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize you could target your own equipment. Exactly. This this is what I this is what the rub was for me. Like I put it in the list like last week, and I was like, I love the design. It's probably unplayable. And then Dave was like, you can just equip your own thing, and I was like, what? Yeah, you know, that's the third way to equip Colossus Hammer for pretty cheap in Pioneer with Cigar Design, Nahiri, and Thieving Skydiver. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, I'm not sure if it's good, right? But it is a cool card and it, it has flying too. So it gets evasion with the Colossus Hammer, which is a nice thing. Well, Colossus Hammer makes it lose flying. Oh, it makes it, oh, that's right, because it's too heavy. Uh, yeah, it, it's also a Burfolk, and I could see sliding this in or maybe main decking it in the Aether Vial mirrors if Vial decks are really popular and just stealing your opponent's Vial and getting a good tempo swing that way. Also, I mean, your stuff has Island Walk oftentimes in Merfolk. So just like have a have an Island Walking Hammer Carrier. Why not? Merfolk Hammer? Is that what you're talking about now? <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Nikachu will, uh, will play it at some point. Try it out. I do love this design, though. So, you know, keep an eye out for it. Everett, is there a, is there a card uh, that we didn't talk about last week that is piquing your interest? Uh, I I posted I got a few down here. I think the new Omnath is amazing. The landfall one. The it's a four it's four mana one of every color besides black. And when it, it's a four mana four four when it enters the battlefield, it draws a card. It has landfall, and the first time a land enters, you gain four life. The second time you make the four mana that it costs red, white, green, blue. And then the third time a land enters, it deals four damage to your opponent and each creature and planeswalker they control. I think this card is modern playable and I think this card will be good in modern. I Mm. think that it specifically slots into 
the soul herder shells. I've been actually finding some success with a soul herder deck that is these colors because I've been main I've been kind of splashing red in the Bant soul herder decks for Avalanche Riders because I think they really struggle against the big mana strategies. And I think this this card slots right in. I'm super excited for it. I think the card is just great. Awesome. One one thing I want to note is that it doesn't hit creatures. It only it doesn't hit, hit creatures. It only hits each opponent and each planeswalker you don't control. I see. Well, it's not as good then, but I still think it's good. <laughs> yeah, that still seems really, really good just for the other abilities it has as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to sort of overlook a card like Omnath because it's like, oh, it's four colors. Oh, it's like it's a legendary. It's going to just be some random EDH card or something like that. But it's, you know, it, that's the kind of thing that you can't just skip over. And I think that's it's, that's something that I would typically fall into. Like, oh, EDH cared. Bye. Let's move on. That's literally thing. what I did with it. So I, I appreciate you bringing it to my attention. <laughs> yeah, I think the card is just going to be great. Do you think this is a four of in that deck, or is that that not the um, type of deck where you can fit this many of those that type of thing? Well, I've been playing Court of Calling and Eladomri's Call, so probably not a four of. You may play one or two as a tutor target, mm-hmm. unless you want to build more around it somehow. You can play more copies, but it's hard to play four of a, of a, any four mana creature in modern. Yeah, and uh, and Legend too, I guess, mm-hmm, makes exactly. it a little complicated as well. But that's awesome. Definitely not a card that was on my radar. Why don't we go to another one from your your list that you have here? So I also have uh, a Maria's Call slash um, slash uh, Ondu's Inversion. These are the white uh, mythic and rare spell flip lands. And I just wanted to talk about these kind of briefly because I could see playing one or the other. One of them is an eight mana, destroy all non-land permanents. And the other one is a seven mana, make two, four, four angels that gain indestructible until your next turn. And I like two things about these cards in modern. Uh, one, I like that you are almost always just going to play it as a land. And then in the late game, you can bounce this land with cryptic, cryptic command and then have a really powerful spell to cast. And also you can potentially just have access to this really powerful spell after you've you know, discarded it or after you've, um, you know, cast it one time to Mystic Sanctuary back, just really over the top spells are good in the late game. But but mostly bouncing the land with Cryptic Command and then casting it in the late game is interesting to me. And the cost of playing one or two of these isn't that high. Yeah, that was my read on these two cards as well. And it just depends on which one you feel like you want and what build you're in. Like, I, you know, do you need a Mirius Call if you have four sh- shark typhoons you know maybe maybe you don't need the big kind of closer but the the wrath is nice the, like the modal wrath is nice to have in that case so i definitely thought that those were some of the most powerful ones of that those cycles as well i actually do think the green one's going to be the one that sees the most play in the mythic cycle that you mentioned earlier but um this one is definitely really good too i mean dave you're forgetting perhaps that when you cast Amiria's call you make a seven seven shark token so oh hell yeah it's the best of the best of all worlds you mean when once you have when you have typhoon out as well yes. already got it oh yeah, yeah you're hard, good to go. hard cast it all the time <laughs> let's talk about forsaken monument really quickly i know this is a card that i think we all were interested in so it's a five mana artifact legendary artifact colorless creatures you control get plus two plus two whenever you tap a permanent for colorless add an additional colorless Whenever you cast a color of the spell, you gain two life. Okay. So this seems like it has some potential homes, but is it is it good like much like kind of like that red enchantment we just talked about earlier? Is this doing enough as this artifact that costs five? And so what like does it there's there's Karn decks, there's Tron style decks, there's you know ramp style decks that are colorless. 
does a lot of little things. Does it add up? I think this card is an excellent card in the Great Creator Wish Target. And I think that this card is going to be good specifically against opponents who are disrupting your mana with Cleansing Wildfire, Spreading Seas, Blood Moon. Um, just you, you have Karn, which you cast for four mana while your opponent's disrupting your mana. And then you cast this and all of a sudden you can cast all of your big spells because it doubles your mana. It also seems, you know, good in Eldrazi Tron with cards like Walking Ballista where you can get it, play a Ballista for zero, just have that 2-2 two, two for zero mana or just remove all the counters and still have Ballista in play. I think it's cool. Um, I just think it's going to be a good card, the great creator target for tr- for Tron decks, and that's probably it. I mean, this is the kind of card that if you end up in a situation where you're threat light at the end of the game and you're like, I'm going to play a matter reshaper, but it's a 5-4, but it's a juggernaut now. Like, I, I guess I could help give you some closing power, which is a good, seems like a good thing as well. I'm definitely not an expert at playing decks like that i mean shane you guys have both played a lot of car the great creator decks i know but i haven't played a lot of eldrazi tron so um yeah cool card seems like a good one of to get for your sideboard there do we think it's a sure win or do we think it's like a meta call i i think that it's almost definitely going to make the cut just because it's so good in those sideboard games when people are disrupting your mana all of a sudden you you could oftentimes cast karn while your opponent's disrupting your mana and that's one of the biggest draws to the card i think in the tron decks and the fact that just you can tutor this up when your opponent's disrupting your mana and all of a sudden all your big spells are online. I think that's really powerful. So I guess you like it because maybe it's a little bit faster than something like a Crucible of Worlds where it's like, okay, like, yeah, I'm expecting more mana disruption and more mana destruction. So I'm going to play Crucible and I can get that out and then start getting my lands back out of the graveyard. But this is just sort of like an instant ramp like back into the game. Especially because, especially because of Cleansing Wildfire specifically. I think that your opponents are going to be able to cast like two of those. Crucible is really slow. Yeah. This just, not only does this double your mana, but you're getting a ton of life. Your creatures are getting bigger. It's doing a lot of other things to just generate advantage. So one, one question really, I have about re- this card real quick is if you have Tron yes. active, does it, so does it only give you an additional colorless if you tap it for a single colorless? That's what I'm trying to look it up right now. Yeah, or like when you if you tap an Urza's Tower for three colorless, are you getting an additional three or an additional one? I can't imagine it like I, I believe, being it looked, that good. I'm reading it as just adding one additional. Yeah, mana. that's what I would imagine. All right, so check the Zendikar Rising release notes because we can't find them right now to make sure that what conditions this works because the way I read it is when you tap a permanent for a single colorless mana, you get an additional colorless mana, yeah, which like, means if Tron is on, like, it wouldn't trigger. So yeah. the, 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 the doubling effects usually say double instead of added additional one. Right. So let's take a, just listeners check that one out. I definitely hear what Everett's saying though. It's a nice backup plan for if someone is, is keeping you off a of Tron, you get that extra mana from it. I think that makes a ton of sense because think of it this way. If someone gets rid of your Urza's tower and you have mine, mine and power plant, that's still yeah. six mana once you have monument out. So, you know, if you can get yourself into an advantageous position to play it, then you get to move on your merry way. Kind of go from there. They put cards like this at mythic for a reason, right? <laughs> okay. Shane, what are, what are you thinking about? Man, I'm thinking about Ruin Crab. <laughs> <laughs> Single blue mana, crab, <laughs> creature crab, landfall. Whenever a land enters the battlefield, each opponent mills three cards. It's a zero three. You're welcome, mill fans. You got another crab. You got Hedron Crab Part 2. You got eight of them now. 
I a lot of people are are hyping hyping this up. Um, notably, this has a very very relevant third point of toughness, which I think is really interesting. Where Hedron Crab is only in O two, this is an O three, and I think that that is going to matter a lot for the mill decks because uh, mill and modern is a control deck. Um, it's a control deck with mill as a win condition. It's playing a lot of disrupting elements while it's enacting its game plan. I kind of think it's. This card's a little weird because one mana removal spells like Fatal Push are not good against Mill right now, but this card makes Fatal Push good against Mill. But Path is still going to be bad, and I definitely think it's a big hit for the uh, the Mill fans. Yeah, it's one of those things where I'm kind of like, we talk a lot about something. I mean, this is like a concept that Frank Karsten, I think, wrote an article about a while ago called the Rule of Eight, where it's like once you go from four copies of an effect to eight copies of an effect in a in modern, essentially, you really get these decks that kind of become can become real decks. Like Storm is the prototypical example, I think, where you go from four to eight Goblin Lecture Managers with Baral being printed. So does this do anything and move the needle that way? Or does it just kind of help Mill become a little bit more consistent than what it is right now? I, I think that you know, the, the Mill has a huge problem where if anybody ever wants to beat it, they can. With playing an Eldr- one Eldrazi in their sideboard means you have a really good, good Mill matchup. Leyline of Sanctity is really good against it. They're often pretty bad against decks like Goldfish. But I do think that like many other decks in Modern, good Mill players have good w- win percentages in Modern. And I think that it, mill is going to get better and definitely that first week people are going to be playing eight crab eight crab mm-hmm. add it to our our eight rack and eight whack <laughs> kind of pantheon of of eight names eight i love it crab i know we're going to get some some feedback from craig very quickly in the slack all right can we talk about a controversial card please i want to argue i would like to talk about wayward guide beast the single mm. red trample haste two-two the Goblin Guide reprint, quote-unquote, that says, whenever Wayward Guide Beast deals combat damage to a player, return a land you control to its owner's hand. I really, as someone who like likes to play aggro decks, I really don't know what to make of this card because that text is so scary on there. <laughs> that's basically like, I have to return a land I control? I have to? Uh, the only th- deck that I've seen so far that tries to turn this into an advantage is the, a landfall aggro deck that I saw Saffron Olive post on Twitter sometime last week, which is just basically like, yeah, Wayward Guide Beast is fine. You pick it up so that you can keep attacking with your landfall creatures like Aquam Hellhound and Step Links. That's like the main positive version of this that I saw. But part of me just keeps wondering, like, what if this drawback isn't that bad for a deck that just wants to play a lot of one drops is there any scenario where this works i actually kind of like this card you know i don't think it's as good as goblin guide but saying it's not as good as maybe the best red one drop ever printed honestly swift spear is probably better whatever uh i don't think that that's you know that doesn't mean it's unplayable i think one very common play pattern you'll see with this card is playing it attacking with it returning your land and then on the next turn attacking with it before you play your land on turn two and so you've, you've gotten in for four damage and you've only returned one land at that point. A lot of times, if you have two one drops, you'll just play this as your second one drop and mm-hmm. the downside won't be that much. Man, Everett is a lot smarter than me with the sequencing right there is what unlocks it. Yeah. And it doesn't have the Goblin Guide downside. Not This is a worse downside, but that is a difference. I think the card is a playable magic card. I 
am not, you know, a big red mage, but it does have synergies with landfall. It has synergies with revolt. Sometimes it'll make mana when you uh, tap your mana on your main phase, attack and return it when you don't have a land to play. I think that that's pretty interesting as well. Um, I like the card. I don't think it immediately slots into any decks, but I don't think it's unplayable. I think it's pretty good. I mean, I like that scenario that you described where you talked about it as your second one drop or maybe your third one even you know you go like turn one goblin like let's say you're playing a deck that's just mono modern one drops right and you go goblin guide and then you go monastery swift spear wayward guide beast on turn two and you just swing in like that's pretty good you know (laughs) but especially because we've seen those uh those triple goblin guide draws in modern are great and now you have eight guide effects um you know maybe on turn two you can only get two down but you know, I really, I think that if you hit your opponent with Wayward Guide Beast on turn one, and then you hit him again on turn two, and then you play your second land after you hit them, you'll be pretty happy with that exchange, getting four damage in immediately. Um, I, I think the card's going to be solid. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, I'm going to go pre-order some of those now. Bad, bad dash. Weird dash. Yeah, it's very strange dash. It's land dash. <laughs> Everett, what's, uh, what's a card we haven't talked about yet that's, again cool cool in your eyes that we're overlooking there's the modal card inscription of ruin the three mana sorcery that is kind of like a charm but you can kick it to get all three modes so it's three mana uh you can choose one and if you kick it for a total of seven mana uh you get all three of these modes so target opponent discards two cards return a creature with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard to the battlefield or destroy a creature with converted mana cost three or less I think this card is of modern power level. It reminds me a lot of Archmage's Charm. Maybe not quite as powerful, but does similar things without so much um, restrictive mana cost being just one black and two colorless. I can see Jund wanting to play this just like with Liliana the Veil. Getting those two extra cards is really relevant. Just like the fact that it's Bind Rot with two other modes, I think is really, really good. The kicker is Gravy. I am planning on casting this card in modern, and I think that it will be good. Wow, that's awesome! I have I looked at this card and was like, I don't know how this how this gets there, but that is really great to hear that you that you see potential in it. Yeah, again, it's valuing flexibility over rate. Yeah, mm-hmm. it gets back Tarmogoyf, it gets back Death Shadow, gets back Scavenging Ooze. Yeah, it kills almost every creature in modern. There aren't too many that cost four or more. There are some, but. No card, yeah, card advantage, removal, or board presence, and the ability to be all three in the late game. I just love it. How many you run? You'd run a couple of these, you think? Yeah, one or two. You know, not probably not a four of. Although, you know, mind rots are often good at multiples in some matchups. Yeah, when you really just want to take somebody's hand away. What about the other two inscriptions? What? Why do you feel like they just didn't get there? Like the blue one is just like, what are we even doing? I feel like a little bit like the modes that they picked were very strange to me. Like they just wanted to not have it be super powerful and then the green one i actually think feels pretty flexible because it is so cheap and it's an instant but the modes there again are kind of medium yeah the the blue and the green one feel like maybe standard cards maybe not the blue one feels so close to being good just the fact that it's a sorcery makes me not like it a ton but i've cast plenty of glimmer of geniuses this is a modal glimmer of genius that could be a creature or removal Maybe the blue one's better than we're giving it credit for, but maybe it's just a standard card. The green one is kind of funny because there is a mode on it that says target player gains X life where X is the greatest power among creatures they control, which kills any number of shadows or the new death shadow, the scourge. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I, I think that that is intentionally supposed to do that, but 
I, you know, I don't know. I don't think every cycle is supposed to be constructed powerhouse necessarily, especially if you look at like the cons of Tarkir commands. Yeah. And especially if you look at the fact that they didn't even make the red one and the infamously didn't make the red one or the white one mm-hmm. in this cycle. You know, I saw a tweet about that. They said that they worked on it. They just couldn't find what they were happy with. So they decided not to. And I think that that's fine. You know, if they're just going to give, the, they probably gave red and white something else instead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's fine, too. It's just an interesting thing that happened. I will say the black one was the first one that was spoiled from this cycle. And I was definitely like, OK, this one is OK. I'm excited to see what the other ones are. And then the other two came out and I was like, huh. All right. Well, <laughs> well I'm glad to hear one of them has some potential, at least. So you think mostly like mid rangey type decks are going to value this yeah, flexibility? Specifically like Black Green Rock or Jund or Death Shadow will play one or two copies if the card is good enough, like I think it is. Awesome. Can we talk about another black sorcery? Feed the swarm. One of the black. Destroy target creature or enchantment an opponent controls. You lose life equal to that permanence converted mana cost. Targeted enchantment hate in black. This is a new effect Black has never had anything like this. They tack on the life lost in order to make it something in Black's color pie. But that's this is this is a novel thing. This is something that Black now has access to and people have to think about. And Black will have the opportunity to like run in a sideboard or something like that. Or even just, I mean, if you could you could run this main. Like if you really wanted to have a you know bad uh, removal spell, but it's flexible against like if enchantments ruling the roost, like let's say uh, Bogles is tier one again or something like that. Yeah, I, I don't love that this card exists. I've always felt like duress, thoughtseize, you know, the like the um, like the slaughter games type effects uh, to you get these enchantments out of the opponent's deck have been Black's ways to deal with enchantments. I, you know, I, I don't uh, I'm not on the color council, but I think that this is this seems to me to be too efficient of a answer for enchantments for Black's first ever targeted enchantment removal. The fact that it also kills a creature is just is wild to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even it's not like black black either. It's one in the black. It's it's easy to 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 even splash if you wanted to. And like the downside's not that bad. Like what like what the most you're taking is like four damage. Mm-hmm. And you know, Death Shadow decks might even want to take the four damage. Yeah, I was going to say the only deck that it feels to me like this goes into, though, like uh, color pie concerns aside, as far as like eternal play goes, it really only feels to me like this goes into a deck that wants the life loss, which is Death Shadow, which uh, that's kind of where my mind goes. I don't know if I see a scenario where there's really an enchantment out there that a black deck has got to, got to, got to get rid of, unless it's like eight rack and ley line of sanctity or something like that. So yeah, but I bet eight rack players are thrilled with feed the swarm and I hope they have a good time casting it. Yeah, exactly. So side note, I feel like I've talked a lot about death shadow during this spoiler season. We just talked about two more cards that could have places in death shadow. Does it feel like shadow got a lot of tools in to you too from this set like it's kind of weirdly feels like there's three or four cards that might be under consideration for use yes i think shadow definitely gets uh a lot of buffs and i know you're already brewing with it or trying trying different versions away from grixis so that's that's cool to see um i'm just surprised because it doesn't really feel like a 
archetype that they were looking to support a couple of years ago. And now there's all these cards that synergize really well with it. I think it just like is one of those things that incidentally gets help. I don't think it's intentional, but you know, Shadow is a one mana card that cares about you losing life and just there are lots of things that I think are going to incidentally complement it. Can we talk about a card that I think is not going to get there and I'm curious to get your take on? Let's talk about Deliberate, which is one colorless and a blue for an instant, and it is preordained. Scry two, then draw a card at instant speed. Two mana is way, way, way more than one mana, but this is an instant. Uh, my gut is that it still doesn't fit just because I think people are going to play opt because of the, the casting cost more often, but I'm curious to see what you two think. Well, I mean, this is something that I'm just going to tee Everett up here, right? Is like, uh, Omen of the Sea. Uh, is that what it is? Is mm-hmm. one in the blue, right? It's the same costing cost. Yeah. 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 But like, you know, the, the thing that Omen of the Sea does is it stays on the board. It can, yeah. be, it can be cashed in or it can be bounced with Yorian or something like that. And I think that's where the value you get out of it, but you tell me like, this is different. It's an instant, you know, it's a, it's a spell that can be used in spell based acts and, you know, Omen of the Sea doesn't really. So yeah, there are differences between deliberate and Omen of the Sea. I think that Omen of the Sea is largely going to be better. I think, you know, specifically in miracles, that was the deck. I played a lot of Omen of the Sea and card is great. Uh, just, but the ability to sack it for the Scry 2 was really, really relevant. The ability to balance it with Teferi is really relevant. It also enables other things like like Yorion, like Revolts, uh, Devotion, um, Returning with Luris. All of these are relevant in Modern and Pioneer. And Deliberate does none of those, but you can flash it back with Snapcaster and return it with Mystic Sanctuary. But it is not even unique in those effects. And I, I think that it's basically always going to be worse than Omen of the Sea um, with maybe a couple exceptions. I'll cross that off my pre-order list. Thank you. (laughs) Archon of Amiria, a card so boring. I like, (laughs) didn't we talk about this last week? But I don't think we did. It's a two and a white Archon or Archon, uh, probably Archon, right? It's so it flies. Each player can't cast more than one spell each turn. Non-basic lands your opponent's control. Enter the battlefield tapped. 2-3. This is moderately useful. Right? This is a this is a 2-3 flying rule of law with additional text of the non-basic lands, right? It fits great in like your Archon tribal deck instead of, you know, you don't have to run Eidolon of Rhetoric anymore. Uh, in your your Archon tribal, you have a true Archon card to go in there. I don't know. I think this is like, I think this has play probably more in like the, the rate is too much for modern, I think. But, you know, if you're, if rule of law is, is, is sometimes there or Eidolon of rhetoric is sometimes there, who knows? I think Eidolon is a pretty good card in modern at the moment. Actually, it's, I think it's actually really good against the modern red prowess decks. Uh, but it's honestly a big part of why it's so good is that fourth point of toughness. Right. Yeah. It's also good against the combo decks, but Oh yeah, I did not I did not give the the power and toughness. Oh, the the yeah, the Eidolon of Rhetoric is the is the four, mm. is the one four, right. right? Yeah, and this is a two three flyer. I mean a two three flyer is a better rate than a one four not flyer. And it also has that Thalia uh the Heretic Cathar non-basic lands intertapped. I could see this card getting there if a taxes deck is playable in modern, but it's pretty rare that a taxes deck is playable with modern you know it's it's always so tough because you always have to curve out you have to draw well and your curve has to line up well against what your opponent is doing um and you have to play really really tight 
and you have very little card selection to find your hate bear uh, at the right time because you don't have like uh, access to Imperial Recruiter or Recruiter of the Guard and, and Modern. But I, I think this card could be a role player. I think that there's definitely some potential here. I felt like this went into Spirits and Pioneer just because you get that buff off of the Imperial Eagle and it's just a nice uh, thing to have around against Lotus uh, Lotus Field mm-hmm. kind of decks. Uh, yeah, I like it there. Good idea. It stops uh, Bring to Light too. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, it feels like a good sideboard piece to have around for that deck. Shane, yeah, can I ask you about Grackmaw, the Skyclave Ravager? Oh, man, I love this card, Dave. Why don't you read it if you love it? I, lo- I love the Hydra Horror. Okay, so it's a legendary Hydra Horror. One black green, so one Golgari uh, for a 0-0. Zero, zero. Why would you want to play that? That seems bad. Oh, it enters the battlefield with three 1-1 one, one counters on it. And whenever another creature you control dies, if it had a 1-1 counter on it, you put a 1-1 counter on Grackmaw. When Grackmaw dies, create an XX black and green Hydra creature token, where X is the number of 1-1 counters on Grackmaw. This is cool. This is a cool card, right? So default is a 3-3 for 3, whatever. Not that great. But... You're not going to be playing this in any typical deck, right? This is going to be something that a Golgari scales type deck would be running. So you might have one or two scales type effects, like a you, know, you might have your winding uh, constrictor. You might have a hardened scales. This comes in as like a five five for three. Uh, other creatures you control are going to have counters on them when they're getting fatal pushed or something like that. Then uh, you get counters on Grackmaw. When Grackmaw eventually trades off or gets revolted, fatal pushed or something like that, then you make you just it's just a straight up card advantage where you get like another creature out of it for like three mana. This is doing a lot for three mana. Yeah, I think. I, th- I think it's cool. Definitely, definitely a sweet card. I, I could see it seeing some pioneer play. I'm a little worried about Fairy Time Raveler bouncing it, but besides that, uh, I, I really hope it gets there. The card is awesome. I was even wondering if it just went in some mid rangey kind of stuff where you just kind of get two, two, three threes out of it and you don't even care. I mean, it's not going to like light the world on fire with that, but it's a useful tool if you've in a metagame where maybe you're going to trade, you can trade off with a lot of creatures with it. So. Could be good in uh, like the Jun Sacrifice deck if people still like to play that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, pair it with your other favorite card, Shane, Village Rights. Play it until it's good and then go for it. Village Rights, I mean, Village Rights is definitely like one of the decks that I will be testing as soon as possible. Like now that I, I'm, I'm feeling some energy and some having some time to get back into playing magic more regularly. I've had a, I've had a pretty crazy few, past few weeks. So I've been more of a, uh, ac- active observer than active player, but now I have some time to grind and I'm finally going to be able to test some village, right? Decks. I think Everett, let's go back to, to your list for the next one, which, uh, which would you like to look at from the cards you were thinking about? Lol Mage's Domination, the uncommon, the triple blue X card that costs three less to cast if it if uh, it targets an opponent's creature who has eight or more cards in their graveyard. Uh, it says gain control of target creature with converted mana cost X. So if your opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard for three mana, you can gain control of a creature. I think this card is a very interesting cyborg card in modern. Kind of reminds me of Vidalcan Shackles, 
but playable. Um, it's really interesting in Mystic Sanctuary mana bases. And just there are a lot of matchups like Jond and Shadow where your opponents are filling up their graveyard really quickly and they have some really powerful high impact creatures. And most of the time, you know, this is going to be three mana steal your opponent's creature. It, it does steal Uro, although stealing Uro is kind of hard because of the delve aspect and the fact that if they kill their Uro, it goes back to their graveyard. But I, I think that this card is going to be sometimes played in modern sideboards for mid-range matchups where creatures are prominent, like Tarmogoyf, Death Shadow, cards like that. I mean, the cost reduction mechanic is really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's it's in, You have to remind yourself, like you said, that if you're going to play this card, that it needs to be against decks that are going to do the work for you, unless you're doing some kind of, um, you know, unless you're doing some kind of like that Delver, a Thieves Guild Enforcer kind of thing where you're playing this out of the board to kind of help you push through with that where you're doing some of the work with like drown in the lock but even if you just have a lot of cheap one for ones you know thought seize fatal push uh even thought scour your opponent for a couple cards um i think it definitely has potential and even you know even if you don't have it on against a death shadow or tarmogoy if it's four or five mana to steal their creature it's not too bad yeah it's not too bad i mean it's nice that it is not a permanent that it's a that it's a spell effect too and so i like that you pointed out you could do it with um, sanctuary, but also just not having it be an enchantment that can be removed or bounced or something like that is good too. So P- potentially very powerful, definitely a card to keep an eye on. Cool. Uh, what else you got? Uh, Legion Angel, I think, is one of the coolest cards I've ever read. Uh, it's a four mana, four three, two white and two colorless for a four three flyer. And when it enters the battlefield, you may reveal a card you own named Legion Angel from outside the game and put it into your hand. That's awesome. I got to tell you, this was on, on my list of cards that I was thinking about putting on our on our review last week. So I'm glad that we did not and that we waited to hear what you have to say about it. Because I was I read it and I was like, this seems like a really interesting squadron hawk kind of thing. But how do you split it up to make it work the best way possible? And I I don't know the answer to that. I, I kind of want to be greedy and just play one in the main deck and three in the sideboard. Because mm-hmm. in Modern and probably Pioneer, you probably never want to draw two naturally. Never, ever, ever. But when you ever draw that one copy, that one copy that's going to turn into four over the course of a game, maybe you take an Aether Vial up to four, but taking Vial up to four is pretty costly. Uh Whenever you do draw, it's going to be pretty powerful. I have had some success in like green, white, Aether Vial, Eldarmy's Call, mid range decks in modern, and just the ability to like Eldarmy's Call for this and then Vial, Vial, Vial is a lot of card advantage. Um, it does also cost three sideboard slots, which is a lot, but just it's such an interesting card. I've seen people argue for a 2 2 split in the main and the sideboard, a 1 3 split in the, you know, three in the main and one in the sideboard. I've heard arguments for all the different numbers and, uh, I think that one in the main and three in the board is going to be the best way to go for a lot of decks, but it's just super cool. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to note about this too is like the rate is fine, right? Like a 4-3 flyer is fine, and if it draws you extra cards, that's absurd, right? If it's if it's a 4-3-4-4 four, 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 or for 4 CE draw three cards, that's like, whoa, that's big time, so... One other thing, if this card doesn't end up being modern playable and you want to play multiple copies in your main deck, if you pitch it to Force of Virtue, you can kind of mitigate that downside of drawing multiples sometimes. More stuff that Stan loves. We'll tell him about it next week. Shane, anything else on your list? Another, So another novel black card that I think is less objectively good than some of the other ones we talked about. It's a 
It's a land enchantment, lithoform blight, one in the black. When it enters the battlefield, you draw a card. Okay, fine with that. Enchanted land loses all land types and abilities and has uh, tap add color, single colorless and also tap pay one life, add one mana of any color. So black has like a history of land destruction, right? But recently I don't think it's been like a large part of the color. And so I kind of like this as an option for black, especially maybe like in pioneer where the land hate in black is pretty weak. Like, you know, this is kind of like spreading seas, right? The spreading seas can see play for blue. This could potentially see play for black, but note that it doesn't take the opponent off their colors, which is like a huge benefit of C. So you're not getting a spreading C's effect in, you know, in reality, but it's, it's an effect nonetheless that also cycles while, while getting you it. I don't know if it gets there though. The pay one life is kind of easy. I think it's interesting. It can also fix your own mana, which is kind of cool. Um, like underneath the blood moon for like black mid range ducks and modern, you know, maybe you're like some kind of Orzov or black green deck. You don't have access to uh, closing wildfire or spreading seas and you don't want to play fulminator mage, but you, you can pick up this card. I, I kind of like it. It, it also gets veil of summered. So keep that in mind. Rough. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you look at this card in comparison to Cleansing Wildfire, right? Where it's kind of like, maybe maybe we're going to push that way instead. But this is a cool card to have around as well. And it's a the last, latest in a long tradition of black enchantments that mess with lands. Uh, I have a card I wanted to add that on, is on your list, Everett, that I wanted to go back to, which is Maul of the Skyclaves. So I'll read it real quick for everybody. Maul of the Skyclaves is two colorless and a white. It is an artifact equipment. It it has the auto-equip ability, so it says when Maul of the Skyclaves enters the battlefield, attach it to target creature you control. Equipped creature gets plus two, plus two, and has flying and first strike. Yeah, I think this card is really cool. I can see it in modern in Stoneforge Mystic Shells that are playing more creatures, like more mid-range versions. Like, I don't think it's going to be very good in, like, the Shark Blade deck I've been playing. It doesn't seem very good to equip it to a shark. But I, if you are playing a more mid-range creature-heavy deck, I think this is a good tool, especially to break up some board stalls against the Field of the Dead decks uh, specifically. I dislike that it, it gives flying, and if you're trying to build a Nihiri Colossus Hammer deck, there's some tension there because Colossus Hammer makes your creature lose flying. Um, but I think the card has potential, and I'll definitely be trying it out. Yeah, I mean, that auto-equip ability is pretty powerful. Right. Like the other card that I that I looked at occasionally was the the one that gives uh gives landfall plus two plus two, basically, but has auto equip it's a one one mana one. And this just seems like a whole other level where it keeps the plus two plus two forever, has flying, has another buff. Um, so I, I'm glad that they put some decent equipment on these, but it doesn't seem like they really broke it in a way that would make us regret <laughs> the fact that they ever put that line of text on onto something. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a pretty juicy line of text. Um, I hope it. I hope that it's good. It's a really cool card. Yeah, uh, and then the last card I wanted to ask you about that's on your list is Felidar Retreat. Yeah, this one is so, something I've been raising my eyebrow at. I don't think I've heard many people talk about it, but Felidar Retreat is a white enchantment. It's three colorless and a white, um, and it has landfall. And landfall can make a two-two cat creature token or it can put a plus one plus one counter on each creature you control and give all creatures vigilance till end of turn and 
there was a card back in uh, the last Syndicar set that I think was called Retreat to... I can't remember what... I think Maria, maybe. Uh, but it was just this card, but worse, where it made a 1-1 token and it, bu- and it buffed your team till the end of turn. And I don't think it gave Vigilance, but it was... It was basically the same card as this, but half as good for the same rate. And that card did see some standard play. That card was a card that people were interested in trying out. And Magic has definitely become a lot more powerful. But a a card that saw play, and then you see a version that's basically twice as good, I'm very interested in. It's basically, it's also basically Field of the Dead as an enchantment, but better because you can also buff your tokens. And I think that that's very interesting because Field of the Dead, in modern at least, really is a spell. And, you know, if you are in on that, you could have more effects with your Philidar retreats, buff your zombie tokens with the second ability. Maybe Field of the Dead gets banned, but you still want to play a Bant, Uro, Gross Spiral deck. You could look to play this card. I I think it's, a, it's potentially really powerful. I don't think I've heard many people talk about it, and I'd at least uh, have my eye out. Yeah, it's funny. The only thing I've seen about it is like a meme online where it's like retreat to Ameria looking at Felidar retreat and being like, what? Why, why would you do this to me? But it is, it does take some, like you want to double check it, like like you said, and um, yeah, it's just twice as good. It's, it's a double the size creature, double the counters, permanent counters, and vigilance until the end of the turn. All right, and I promised the last card was the last card, but this is actually going to be the last card. Just because I'm really curious about what Everett thinks about Seagate Stormcaller, the mythic blue card that doubles when you when you cast your next spell when you cast it. Two two versions that I wanted to ask about this. One was, you know, we spent a lot of time last week talking about this card as just like a value engine, kind of similar to Snapcaster Mage. How's it fit? How's it compared to that? And then in the last week, there's been some kind of social media chatter about Stormcaller as a combo piece with Neoform. And I was curious if either one of those things, what do you think about this card? And if either one of those kind of paths kind of piqued your interest at all. So Seagate Stormcaller is a very cool card. You know, it feels very similar to the red, the new Goblin Guide, Way Guide Beast, in that it is, in that it seems worse than Goblin Guide, this seems worse than Snapcaster, but worse than Snapcaster isn't necessarily the end of the world. You know, I don't think that it's going to, pairing it with a Neoform to get, Heliod and the uh, Spike Feeder is really going to be all that good, especially because if that is a deck, you can just respond to the ETB trigger and kill the Stormcaller, and then they need another two-mana creature to sacrifice the Neoform. And also, the Infinite Life doesn't win very many games of Modern, sadly. Uh, I don't think this card is going to have a big constructed impact. Um, as, like So as, in, in the lower power formats like Standard and Pioneer, the spells that you have access to the copy are less powerful. So you're copying Shocks instead of Lightning Bolts. Copying Thoughtseize on turn three might be good. Copying Fatal Push might be good sometimes, but you just don't have access to cards like Mana Morphos. You have less powerful creatures in two to four with Neoform. And I, I think that this card is not going to get there. I think the kicker on the card is very, very rarely going to come up. Seven mana, and then you have to spend more mana on another spell is, is so much... I'm sure it will happen, but it's just a tiny bit of extra gravy. It was just fine for a kicker ability. But I, I don't see this making a big splash in, in Pioneer or Modern. Yeah. The only place I'm wondering about it now is everybody seems to be excited about it in Historic as well. And so I guess we'll just see how that goes since I don't play Arena. We'll see if that's the next Muxus that people complain about or something like that. But I've never played any Historic. Muxus is crazy. I don't see this being as good as that card, but maybe there's something I'm missing. 
Awesome. Well, I think that's kind of it for the the spoilers. You know, it's interesting. We kind of hit a lot of really high profile cards in the first week, and there's some good cards here. But I, I you know, there's there's a lot of cards that add to a lot of different sets in in Zendikar Rising, and I'm excited to try it out once it comes out of Magic Online this weekend, basically, I believe, or maybe next week even tomorrow. Or is that what the update is tomorrow? Yeah, they the they're coming to to Magic Online tomorrow. Oh man, so I get to watch streamers tomorrow and like see people playing new decks, maybe test something myself. This is exciting. Uh, Everett, we want to. We have probably time for a, a few questions for you. We didn't. We didn't get a bunch of of questions from the Slack. It's it's almost no longer that special to have you on because uh, it's just you know you're the the unofficial fourth host. Um, but I do have some questions that I'm curious about. Like, what do you what do you think is going to be like the most impactful card for? You know, modern or pioneer, if you think something's like specifically for pioneer from Zendikar Rising, and and more importantly, like why do you think it's it's bringing that impact? So my head is telling me cleansing wildfire. I think the card is incredibly flexible and fills a lot of roles as Tron hate as mana fixing under Blood Moon, as just maybe a good card in general. It's good with lead and arbiter. I think that card is going to see a lot of play in both pioneer and modern. Just a good card. But my heart is telling me Omnath. I think Omnath is just kind of nuts. Wow. Yeah. I, I really think that it, it's, you know, it. everything about the card is is bananas. Just if you can ever play it and a fetch land in the same turn, you're spending four mana, draw a card, gain four life, get the four mana you just spent back, do something else. The card just seems bananas, and I can see it being good in both Pioneer and Modern, and I'm definitely going to be casting it. Yeah, you might be able to, in that sequence, you could end it with uh, Yorian mm-hmm. out of your hand, yeah. maybe, and then flip it again, you yeah. know? There's, there seems to be a ton of crazy sequences, and it also draws a card when it enters, and it's a 4-4 four, four for 4. The, the card, it, the, the mana cost is tough, but the mana cost is very doable. Is there, like, a, a deck... Or like a brew that you already have in mind that you're like that you've built in your mind or, you know, even like, you know, tested somewhere that you think has like real potential that you're really excited about. Well, for the for Omnath, there's the the Soul Herder deck that's I've already been splashing red in like the Bant Soul Herder deck for Avalanche Riders. This card just fits right in there. Uh, Nahiri is I going to generate a few different brews for me and I hope that that's good. I'm excited to try out some of these new tools in Death Shadow and a blue-white control with some of the big instants or sorceries. I I don't know if I'm going to play any Titan, but I think the new Mythic land will be really good in Titan. I kind of want to try Jace Mirror Mage in blue-white counterbalance miracles in modern. Maybe not play counterbalance. Like the Scry 2 is kind of cute. Probably not going to be very good, but I'll try it once or twice. At least the casting cost isn't bad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, those are just some of my ideas. I, I always spend a couple of weeks on stream just playing with new cards whenever Zendikar or whenever the new set comes out. And that's what I'll be doing. So I think we were already talking about the metagame evolving away from, from Uro as being quite to dominate in modern. So it doesn't really feel like there's much here that's a direct tool against Uro, but maybe there are, um, maybe just the metagame's naturally moving away from that. And so it's going to open up it's the metagame is already opening. And so new cards, I think it's a great time to get new cards into the format as well, because there's probably a lot of opportunity for people to see what's going to happen with them. Yeah. I, I do think in modern people are shifting away from Uro. There does seem to be kind of a prevailing mindset that the Uro decks are too good, but that hasn't been my experience playing with and against them. I do think Uro is a pretty unfun card. The fact that 
game revolves around it so much and it keeps coming back again and again and again. But there are lots of cards in Modern that line up really well against it. The aggro decks can out-tempo it. Blood Moon is good against it. Jace is good against it. Teferi is good against it. Remand, rest in peace. Um, Spreading Seas can even cut them off double green sometimes. Sort of Feast and Famine. There, there's, there's a lot of play against it and I think people are getting better at playing against it. Uh, I don't think there's a ton from Zendikar specifically that will be great against Uro with the exception of maybe Cleansing Wildfire. It's just going to make it hard for them to double green. If you just have two Cleansing Wildfires, these Uro decks only play two forests. I could definitely see you stranding the Uros in the graveyard just by casting a couple of those. I think that, uh, yeah, I'm excited to get going on this and I'm glad that I pre-brought four Cleansing Wildfires so I know that I'll have them right away because <laughs> I definitely a sweet card. I'm I'm excited to hear how excited you are to play it too. Let's uh, let's head on into the promotional zone. Everett, tell people how they can uh, engage with you you online, how they can see your content, how they can hang out with you uh, while you're streaming. Yeah, I stream uh, every weekday from 9 a.m. to about three, sometimes four p.m. Central Standard Time over on twitch.tv slash aspiring spike. I usually try to play one weekend tournament too, but those are a little less structured. Um, I'm also on Twitter, on twitter.com slash aspiring spike, and uh, hope to see you guys in the stream. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Your stream is still the one I turn on and just have on in the background. I'm watching magic. I'm looking forward to engaging with you uh, in the near future, man. And if, if uh, maybe during downtime, we actually can, maybe people will have watched us uh, play that new, what's that game that everyone's playing now? It's like Among Us. Among Us. Fall Guys is already dead. Now it's time for Among Us. Yeah, Fall uh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, just like the, the quarantine gaming time life, or lifespan is so short. But yeah, uh, a bunch of other streamers that they wanted to play. I've never played. Uh, I don't know how it's going to go, but I'd love to have you play some games. All right. So that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet... Subscribe to our podcast. You get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. Your, you know, your iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, Pocket Casts, whatever you use, automatically download us. It does a couple of things, right? Like one, you get the podcast right away. You don't have to like remember to download it. And two, it lets us know that people are into us and lets us know that people are actually listening to us. So we appreciate people who are doing that. And if you use Apple Podcasts, uh, leave us a rating, leave us a review. We love reviews, makes us feel good about ourselves, makes us also know what people uh, like that we're doing. So let us know what you're into about the dive down. If you want to give us a question, you know, ask us something about modern pioneer, you can tweet at us uh, at the dive down or email the dive down at gmail.com. Of course, if you want to support the show, join our Patreon. You join at any tier, even a dollar an episode, you get immediate access to our super secret Slack server. Uh, we love hanging out with people. We have good conversations there all day. You can go to patreon.com slash the dive down. Again, shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring us. Uh, you can sign up with them using promo code the dive down, all one word for 20% off your first three months of renting magic online cards. Thanks to the bands Nowhere and Space Blood for letting us use their music. And until next week, Get out there and watch Aspiring Spike. <laughs>